I'm Katie Auth in Washington. And I'm Rose Mutiso in London. And this is The High Energy Planet, the podcast from the Energy for Growth Hub about new ideas to solve global energy poverty. On today's show, we talk with Damilola Ogunbigi, former head of the Nigerian Rural Electrification Agency and currently CEO of the UN's Sustainable Energy for All initiative. She's also a new board member of the Energy for Growth Hub. We'll ask Damilola about where the international community is falling short on fulfilling SDG 7, what COP26 was like behind the scenes, and what her views on Nigeria's surprise net zero commitment are. But first, Rose and I get amped up about climate finance. All that coming up on this episode of High Energy Planet. All right, so it's time for Amped Up, when we talk about what we can stop thinking about right now in the energy and development space. And this week, we're obsessing about climate finance. So this was one of the top priorities for African countries at COP26, which ended up being a massive disappointment for anyone who cares about climate justice and just energy transitions in poor countries, which, by the way, should be everyone. On the other hand, though, we also saw private investors make some bold commitments at the COP. For example, there was the launch of the Glasgow Financial Alliance for Net Zero, which is a coalition of over 450 finance firms jointly managing $130 trillion who have pledged to align their financing activities with Net Zero by 2050, whatever that means. As always, these announcements generated lots of excitement and seems to be part of a larger trend to elevate private sector-led solutions in climate and development discourse. So Katie, what do you make of all of this buzz around private climate finance? Do we need to reevaluate this strategy? The need is actually much larger. So that's driven a lot of people to focus on using public dollars to de-risk private investment in clean energy particularly. So this is effectively what institutions like the USDFC or the IFC are doing when they guarantee or invest directly in solar and wind farms. And it's long been a focus of U.S. policy. It's what Power Africa was set up to do, for example. Mm -hmm. But I think we need to be really careful about putting all of our eggs in the leveraging private capital basket. It's definitely a huge part of the solution. But as our friends at CGD pointed out recently... 83% of total infrastructure investment in developing countries is actually public, and Mm -hmm. that's including 79% of energy investment. So we need to make sure we're giving ourselves the tools to do all of that as well. Oh, wow, Katie, those are some pretty sobering numbers. I mean, it's great that the private sector is stepping up, but they're responsible for this tiny, you know, 20%, maybe plus sliver. And so public sector players are clearly not off the hook. As always, there are no silver bullets and finance, like every other aspect of this climate crisis, will need lots of creative thinking and diverse approaches. And I I don't know, hopefully we'll see the conversation move in a more balanced direction. And Katie, you and I will definitely be watching this space. So if you have an energy development obsession, good or bad, tweet it to us at Energy for Growth and we'll include it in an upcoming episode. Coming up, we talk with Damilola Ogunbi from SE for All. Lola, welcome to High Energy Planet. It is so great to have you here. Thank you for having me. So we wanted to jump in with a question about your background. Globally, obviously, you're one of the most prominent women in energy, certainly in energy access. But you've said before that this really wasn't your original plan. And Rose and I are very curious, what would have been the alternative? I don't know, actually. One of the key things that I did straight out of university was work in the construction industry. Really? Yeah. So I was there building buildings on site, 
in very cold weather after I left university for about three years, which was just fantastic. And I think that has lent to what I'm doing now and why I need to see something built on ground and action on ground. I have a hard time kind of leaving things to policy and paperwork mm. as success or, or, or an event as, oh, we've done something really successful. So um, it's been tough going from this to more of an advocacy role. And I feel at least this role allows both my worlds to merge. We'll have the advocacy, but we have to show the connections on ground. Interesting. That's really great. Maybe next time one of your team members can get you on a solar build. Just, <laughs> just. <laughs> I have been, I have been on the solar build, and I've been on top of many, many IPPs as well with my hard hat and oh, that's, um, that's my wonderful. boots. So I do all love my earlier pictures are like that. <laughs> I do love a hard hat. Okay, I'm glad. <laughs> I'm glad you're getting that in. <laughs> Okay, so continuing on the theme of uh, your background. So uh, obviously, you've been a real trailblazer as an African woman in the energy sector, both in Nigeria and regionally, and now the global sphere. So based on your experience on the front lines of this issue, where are you seeing the most opportunities for women in energy? And where are they still being denied access? I think I'm going to take that question in two parts. I think women are seen as an instrumental force now in energy development, especially African women. I'm hoping that people understand that they can't just decide policies and frameworks in the global north and expect to implement it in the global south with no issues and then blame the people on ground for not understanding the implementation. So, and, and women have to be at the heart of that. Unfortunately, Women are the ones who bear the brunt of the issues when it comes to energy. Um, but we're getting some really great data now on having a woman either head an organization to do with clean energy or be part of an organization actually does better than the male counterpart. So the data speaks for itself. On the other part, when I said I wanted two parts, is um, women understanding and being unapologetic for giving other women opportunities. I think that is something that is now seen as okay. Unfortunately, in my younger life, women didn't want an, any other woman on top. It was it was a very, very strange relationship, right? They just mm -hmm. wanted to be the only woman on top. And mm -hmm. I think if we're going to be really honest about women, we also have to be honest about our fellow women and how we have to create the space. So in Nigeria, I am so proud of all the young women that trained with me and taught me as well. And left, you know, I left behind probably like 600 of the smartest young Nigerian women who are really leading the charge. So you can't, you know, for me, it's like you can't worry about what people are saying. That why did you employ another woman or why is mm -hmm. this another woman in this role? You have to be very unapologetic that this is what I'm going to do and be ready to take the heat for it because it's 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 not very popular, not just amongst males, but even other women. Oh, that's that's a great I love that uh, great insight that the days of the scarcity mentality are gone. There's enough to go around. Do you ever find that you're still in situations where you're the only woman in the room all these years later? Of course, all the time, especially in this role, because, mm -hmm. um, and I say this very openly, I, I, I feel that I, I sometimes don't fit into people's aesthetic as what an African woman will be looking like, hmm. just literally physically. I think they think I'm, I'm, I seem much younger, I seem, mm -hmm. and that was one of the reasons why I wanted to come into this role and just show 
all the amazing dimensions of African women and we look different. And, and one day I can have a long weave down to my knees and another mm-hmm. day like today, which you can't see me, I have my big old Afro <laughs> and I'm cool with it. And mm-hmm. to also see a younger African leader, I'm not young, but I'm slightly younger in the mix. So there were lots of times and you can get in Zoom when people kind of zoom in with their faces and think you're the PA of yourself, mm-hmm. which could be quite hilarious. And it's just it's just not possible that you could be the youngest undersecretary of the UN. It has to be some type of mistake. So you're you're it's 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 still a constant, unfortunate. But what is more disappointing is when you're the only person of color. There's mm-hmm. absolutely no diversity in the room. And and then talking about Africa also <laughs> exactly. as the only so African. I, so I've been in many conversations actually that I've said that I'm not comfortable in this room or in this group and until they get someone from the global south in the conversation and I won't continue this so that's and and, you know it's not it's not an easy thing to do when you're when you're dealing at the highest level but you have to do that unless things don't change. Have you always felt comfortable coming forward and saying that or was that something that you had to to get comfortable with over time? I think I had to get comfortable with it over time but where I've come from I'm not the minority you have to understand, you mm-hmm. know, um, you know, being black African where I come from is my superpower. And I think that's what it is here. So I've never felt different in any kind of way or felt undermined until you really see you are physically different here, which I do think. And, and I speak about it because I don't want everyone to, you know, let's go in deep into, into into some racism argument. But you have to understand the environment that you're put into. Right. And you have to understand and, and equip yourself to tool yourself on changing that narrative for your own benefit and the benefit of the organization. But more importantly, to see past that and feel just have the end goal. And the end goal is people who are much less privileged than I am, who can't probably listen to this podcast right now because they have no electricity and who are living day by day. So sometimes you, you, it does frustrate you, you do get upset, but you have to really look past that and say, if it's helping somebody, I can cope with it. If it doesn't help somebody, then there's a problem. No, that's great. Just uh, amen and amen to all of that. Yeah, <laughs> I, I was going to say exactly that. <laughs> but we are, unfortunately, in a way, going to turn to energy. So as CEO of, of SE for All, a big part of your job is rallying the international community to achieve sustainable Development Goal 7, which aims to ensure universal access to modern energy by 2030. We've definitely made progress, but as you've already alluded to, we're not there yet. Are there particular ways in which you feel the international community is failing on SDG 7? Absolutely. Um, first, recognizing that it's a crisis, recognizes that, that you know, even issues like clean cooking alone kill 4 million African women every single year. And that is unacceptable now. Recognizing that energy is firmly part of the climate crisis and instead of just putting the two as different things. And also understanding that for not two countries will not be the same in their energy transition path. People have to be at the center of energy transition. It has to be just, it has to be equitable, and it has to take people out of poverty. I feel like people in the global north do not understand that enough 
and they don't actually understand what is at stake when we truly leave no one behind. I think hints of that we've seen with the pandemic response, right? So when things affect the global north, they find 17 trillion somehow. It just appears, right, at less than 1% money. Um, But we've been talking about providing power to everybody, energy, clean cooking and electrification for, for many years and many decades. And we haven't seen any amount of money to the just, you know, filters in. So finance is key. Policy and regulation, yes, it's important, but it has to be back to finance. And I feel that a lot of developing countries are getting restless and they just don't feel like they're part of this global conversation, which is sad and which is one of the reasons why I believe I'm in my role to give people hope, but also challenge people when they're not doing what they should be doing. So you just joined the Hub board and we're extremely excited. Yay! Obviously, it's uh, <laughs> an honored. Yeah, uh, best news of the year. So how do you think the Hub's approach to energy poverty uniquely adds to this global conversation, especially given the logjam that you've just described? Firstly, I'm super, super excited to join the board. But even before I joined the board, what attracted me to the Hub is that the Hub just says the truth. And I know that seems very sad to say, but a lot of people are not honest enough. And it's the truth based on data and evidence. And you you find a lot of data and evidence skewed to whatever people's agendas are or a sovereign agenda or company agenda. It's really nice to have an honest broker in the room that can work with you and say that, look, this is really what has to happen. This is what a just and equitable energy transition really, really means, that it is unacceptable to still be living in 2021 and have 81 gigawatts of power for a billion people. In my country, Nigeria, that translates to barely 144 kilowatt hours annually per person. I mean, it's just ridiculous, Mm -hmm. you know, Mm -hmm. like to, to power your fridge. I don't even know what that comes to. And energy poverty is a real thing. It's not a, how can I put it, inconvenience. Mm-hmm. It's a difference between life and death for millions of people. And, and that's what I think the hub brings to the agenda and getting it into policymakers, both from the global north and the global south, as the top of their agendas. Coming up, we ask Damilola to take us behind the scenes at COP26. And of course, we play around to rave. So Damilola, you recently attended COP26 in Glasgow, and from what I saw on Twitter, you participated in tons of plenaries, panels, and other events, which just it all sounds exhausting, um, as well as being featured in what looks like hundreds of photo ops. And I'll, I'll just say here as an aside, you are a style icon for me. You're almost unseating Michelle Obama. So <laughs> in, in my books, which is very high praise. Give me the name of your tailor. But anyway, so aside from all of this, kind of the talking, the events, the photos, what we see in the public view, you know, take us behind the scenes. You know, what's something we should know about the event that we couldn't tell from your Twitter for like those of us observing from the outside? Okay, thank you. And I wanted to bring some color into COP. I felt everything was very black and brown. Yes. You, you did. You did. Let, 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 me, let me be colorful in Scotland while oh, I'm training. You really yeah, represented. So thank, thank you. Thank, thank you for that. I think what was most important is that, you know, 197 countries came together and kept the hope 
of 1.5 degrees alive. I say the hope because obviously there's still so much more that needs to be done and there's still so much urgency that has to be there. A lot of ambition needs to be on financing the decade of action, reaching net zero by whichever year a country can reach net zero. And most importantly, understanding the needs of the developing world is different from the emerging economies and is different from the developed world. So I think that's what came across the COP. There was a real feeling of we want to make a difference. Did we make that difference? I think we were on the right path, but there's so much that needed to be done. I felt that some of the countries, especially developing countries, and I'm going to be honest, were not as prepared as they should be. And I also felt that the response to some of the developing world, especially the African countries, was kind of left behind, which, 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 which sometimes happens in these places. But one of the things that were a key message that I'm so glad we got across is a just and equitable energy transition. And as painful as it was, many, many hundreds of hours, we got the largest economy in Africa and the largest oil and gas country to say net zero by 2060. For me, that was huge because what that did, it, 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 it allowed me now in terms of behind the scene, all the other countries running up to me. How do we do this? How do we do that? How do we get to a part of energy transition? That's the buzz you want to create, right? However, creating the buzz is one thing. Following through and making sure that you actually support and advise them is what we now have to do, right? So COP is great. It's two weeks, everybody getting together. But post-COP is a lot more important than COP to me. And it's also because we're having an African COP, COP27 in, in, in Egypt. And I, I'm hoping that would allow us to have you know, a better mix between the climate and development world when it comes to COP and people recognizing that the, I guess the entry point for climate in a lot of African countries is actually energy. So those are the things I'm working on. I'm looking forward to, I'm screaming at people to please fund us to help and and handhold. The other thing that was clear was that even the developed world hasn't got it themselves together do you know what I mean and and that was that was great because it's like well if you haven't figured out how you're gonna do it you're now insisting everybody else does how does that exactly work and I'm hoping co-chairing with the COP president who was really great and the energy transition council can allow us to have those uncomfortable conversations you know about carbon about fuel sources about transitionary fuels moving forward to make sure this transition is actually just and equitable. And I guess finally, one of the things I want to hop on about is just the opportunity that energy brings. There's so much about, you know, it seemed like just this vicious aid cycle, but it actually brings a lot of opportunity to these developing countries that allow them not to continuously need very limited aid that's even providing and understanding what those opportunities are and being able to implement it in country will be great. And that's what I'm hoping the next few years, at least for my organization, we focus on. Yeah, it's interesting to think about, you know, you have your role within SE for All and the UN structure, but you're also from Nigeria, which is this gigantic African economy, heavily dependent on fossil fuels, significant energy poverty, and also very vulnerable to climate impacts. And We were curious if you had to define climate justice in just a sentence or two, how would you do that? I guess climate justice is 
for me, it's very simple. It has to be something that alleviates energy poverty for everybody. And it has to be enough energy as well to allow businesses and economies to thrive. A lot of people have heard me say this, and I'm sure I'm sorry I'm going off script, but it's not okay to say because someone doesn't have any power at all, a solar lantern will suffice the rest of their life. Mm-hmm. And I feel that that's what we do. We just say because people don't have something, the minimum level, which is not even electricity, which is light, is is what they need. So climate justice is giving people enough energy so they can improve their lives and they can come on the economic growth ladder. And we know how to do it. All the technologies are available today. We just have to make sure they get to the right people. Then it's it's sustainably spread. But we can't spend you know, years and months designing programs and then implement it on ground and spend another four years in procurement and and think that we're doing something that would actually help another human being. We Speed has to come into when we talk about climate justice. If we continue the way we are, we will still have easily 600 million people without having access to electricity at all by 2030. I love that. And it makes me think of your history in in the construction industry, actually, because, you know, traditionally climate justice has largely been about providing funds for adaptation, which is obviously important, but it's largely defensive, right? And your position is much more about let's also be building what we need for the future and for success and prosperity. And I like that. Yeah. And so I think continuing in that theme and kind of how we tie climate to development and find the balance between the two. So you had actually made a reference to this earlier, but so Nigeria made this surprise 2016 at zero commitment at the COP. Some people are cynical because they maybe felt like, you know, what is this? Is it meaningless? Is it an empty promise? What's where does this where did this come from? Others are really excited. I think it's very positive. And, and others don't even think that net zero is a frame that makes any sense for African countries at all, given their limited contributions to climate change. Like, where do you stand on this? Like what 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 does net zero mean for Africa? I think net zero is depending on what type of country it is and exactly what you said, how much carbon it actually brings. We all know that, you know, if you take away South Africa, Sub-Saharan Africa has below 1% of the the whole carbon fold. But let's be honest about it. Climate change is not something that affects one country or two countries. We have to be all in it together, right? And, you know, Nigeria's energy transition plan isn't only about... Nigeria changing its energy mix, right? But it's also about how does it affect its um, oil and gas export market? What is the new sector that it's going to be? Because we can see these things coming, just like you can see electric vehicles coming, right? We all know that. And you have to decide as a country, are you going to be the person who's just going to take all the secondhand stuff that is thrown away from Europe? Or are you going to make sure your economy can build and have its own EV market because these things are coming. And I think that's all Nigeria is doing. There's actually an energy transition plan, but it, you know, it is going to cost above 400 billion of business as usual spending, 1.5 trillion in total for Nigeria to get anywhere near net zero by 2060 and bridge its energy access gap and get to a state of industrialization. So it's important to understand the ands, you know, you know, and, and, and the reason why the commitment is important is because now you can say, okay, I have a plan, Global North. How are you going to support me to 
get to a point where I can actually get to, to transition in any sense. If you continue and ask for support without a plan, then what is the basis? So I'm very big on, on plans, but I'm bigger on what happens next, the implementation. And I think a stance by a country like Nigeria, who's firmly a developing country and not an emerging economy like um, South Africa, and doesn't have coal because everyone's excited about coal and nothing else, you know, how are you going to support that will really be the template for a lot of smaller countries who need the same thing. And to be honest, are really the victims of climate change. I'm not even, and they don't even know if their countries would exist in 20, 30 years. So it's important to recognize that we all have to be in this together and we have to hold each other responsible. Right now, it seems that the global north is just holding the global south responsible. Does that make sense? Yeah. Or holding themselves. And no one from the global south is actually holding the global north responsible. And that's not fair. It's not a fair balance and it's not equitable. It's actually quite refreshing talking to you about this because, you know, I think that your take on the symbolism and maybe a little bit of the theater of the COP and the pledges is actually more positive than perhaps a lot of us have thought. And so it's actually quite energizing to think that this is for something. It's not for nothing to put a stake in the ground and then work from there. Thanks for that perspective. <laughs> no, absolutely. It's important to realize that you have to take any opportunity you can to explain to people just how bad things are and what has to happen. And if it's just one or two or three countries that actually act, for me, that is a win. You know, it might not be enough, but it's a win along the same lines instead of just avoiding something and getting nothing in return. But that's the type of person I am. Uh, I love that. We we have no time for purity testing. We have to take what we can, where we can. <laughs> we, we just need to go. This is eight years to go, you know. <laughs> yeah. Damilola, it's now time to play Ranto Rave, which is a quickfire game in which we give you a word or a term and you choose to either rant, so you're frustrated and you have some grievances to air, or you can rave, so if you're excited about this, you have something positive to say about it. And if you rant or rave, tell us why. So this is supposed to be pretty quick. We have one minute to get through as many of these as we can. I'll set my timer. So we want, you know, a one-sentence response really, really quick. So are you ready? Okay, sure. <laughs> okay. I think so. Okay, go ahead. Okay. I, time has started. Okay. Climate finance. Rant or rave? Rant. There's absolutely not enough of climate finance. True. It does not recognize energy as part of the conversation. And a lot more climate financing has to go into clean cooking and energy because that is key to helping this climate crisis we're in. All right, 38 okay. seconds. Mini grids. <laughs> love mini grids. Love them, love them, love them. But it's not the answer for every single person, right? Mm -hmm. So there's a pool of people that this is the answer for. And also a big fan of interconnected mini grids with the grid whenever right. the grid comes. Nollywood movies. Oh my gosh, this is really bad because <laughs> I hardly watch them. But yes, rave. I have to rave. I can have in the protest by my fellow Nigerian people. No, but honestly, we've done we've done so well, and it's just it's just so amazing to see like a whole industry. I think it's the third largest movie industry right now. So extremely proud to be Nigerian. 
All right, our, our one minute is up. I love, I love that save at the end. So, <laughs> all right, we're good. It's maybe good we ran out of time. We were going to ask you about Scottish food, and that oh, would have gotten you in trouble too. <laughs> I didn't get a chance. Unfortunately, this would have got me in trouble because everything was vegan, and I'm like, this is the way climate is going to go. Um, but the good thing is, I think I lost like two kilos in Scotland, so it, it helps. Oh, these are the sacrifices we're all making for climate. You know, I was just like, okay, <laughs> vegan food for two weeks. But yeah, I love food, so that was good. Okay. Dami Lola, thank you so much for being with us. We've had so much fun and we admire you so much. Thank you. Thank you for having me. I'm probably going to come up to D.C. next year. So really great to meet up with you guys in person. Yes, all that right. would be fantastic. All right. Take care. Have a all wonderful right. day. You thank too. You. you too. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. So that's it for today's show. High Energy Planet is a production of the Energy for Growth Hub, matching policymakers with evidence-based pathways to a high energy future for everyone. Find out more at energyforgrowth.org and tweet your questions and thoughts to us at Energy for Growth. If you liked today's episode, be sure to rate and rank the podcast and tell a friend about us. Bob Lalish is our executive producer. Gray Johnson is our senior producer. Join us next time for more High Energy Planet. 